Turn to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 of Galatians 6 this morning. To set the context a little bit, let me remind you that the first four chapters of Galatians, Paul is laying out his defense of the true gospel, that sinners are not saved nor are they sanctified by their own works, but by the grace of God received through faith, and that faith being also a gift of God. Then in chapter 5, Paul instructs this young church on how to live out this same gospel, not by legalistic do's and don'ts, but by walking, that is living, according to the Spirit. And finally, in this last chapter, chapter 6, Paul walks them through the process of how believers in Christ function as the body of Christ. And I love that this passage is so very practical, practical for us to apply today. In these verses, we'll see three practical ways that you can fulfill your role as a spiritual lifeguard so that this fellowship will be a healthy place of hope and healing to the glory of God. So as we study this passage, Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5, Please consider how you should respond, how you would apply these truths. This is the beautiful thing about God's Word. It's not just there for our um, information, but instruction and transformation most specifically. I, find, I, I hope that you'll find that this passage will instruct us so that we'll find we're obligated and equipped as well as able to obey God's Word in this ministry. So follow along with me. If you have your Bibles, Galatians chapter 6, let's pick it up in verse 1, and then I'll pray to launch our study into his word. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Let me start us with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we, we come into your presence this morning as those who are desperate for you. Cause us, Lord, to be sensitive to our own sin, compassionate toward others, receptive to your instruction, submissive to your spirit, and passionate for your glory. Help us, we pray, to live according to your word that we might grow according to your grace. And we pray in the matchless and mighty name of Jesus, the only Savior. Amen. Have you ever been confronted in a sin? Not just when you first came to Christ, somebody came to you, shared the gospel, exposed sin in your life, your need for a Savior, but as you've been walking with Christ for years or maybe even decades, a friend, a brother, a co-worker, a spouse comes along and they confront you in, well, an area of your life that's sinful, an area of your life that you've been, well, you've just looked a little too much like the world. It's not pleasing to the Lord and it's simply unhealthy for your walk. Colossians 3 would call these simple little sins idolatry. 
Though many of us are often put off by this audacious act when people come into our lives and point things out, it's often due to our pride, but the wise man would hear and even receive when others come and speak into their life. Proverbs chapter 9 tells us, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. Therefore, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you, but reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. We want to be wise. Or how about this? Have you ever been the one who's had to confront a brother or sister in Christ in regard to an area of their life that is not pleasing to the Lord and it's harmful to others? This is an essential ministry for all of us to be able to come alongside and approach a sinning brother and help them through this time of struggle. This is the process of Matthew 18. Go to your brother and make known to them what's not pleasing to the Lord. We need to speak into their life and we pray that they would hear us. And if they do hear us, what does Matthew 18 say? Then we've won our brother. Praise God. But how does this process work? How do we approach a brother? And not only that, but if they do hear us and they do repent, is our job done? Maybe there's more to it, that after Matthew 18, once they hear us, they repent of their sin, we need to also guide them in the growth that is to follow. That's where we come along Galatians chapter 6. If you are like me, though, there are times when a person is struggling with sin, and we just simply feel ill-equipped, maybe fearful. We don't want to approach it, but the wonderful thing is in Galatians 6, we have a step-by-step, very precise, very instructive, very enlightening passage that tells us how we can care for those who are caught up in sin, those who in an area of their life are not pleasing to the Lord. So I pray that this passage would be, in fact, very instructive, even encouraging to your own heart, as well as the body altogether. Look down at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 starts by giving us the context. Uh, Paul is setting the stage for our instruction. We see the recipients of this letter addressed as brothers. Paul is writing to believers. And this is very important for us to understand, in fact, even vital. If you are a Christian, God has already made available to you the resources you need, the tool set that you need to be growing in Christ-likeness as well as helping one another grow in Christ-likeness. We have what we need. They are available to us. You see, every time that we sin or when somebody else sins, it's not because God has left us without resources. It's because we've laid aside, forsaken, or walked away or forgotten the resources that He has made available. And so we pursue our own desires or worldly ways. Likewise, if you desire to come alongside and help a brother or sister on their walk, these same tools are employed. The tools specifically are the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the people of God. God has given us what we need by His Spirit, His Word, and His people to care for one another. That's why we are the body of Christ, the people. Knowing this, Paul begins to set up a hypothetical situation, yet a very real one. Notice he says, if, right? If anyone is caught. You see, Paul's not pointing the finger as if he's just looking at somebody and pointing through his letter And you know Joe over there who struggles with... No, he sets up a hypothetical situation. If anyone is caught, or we could say it like this. Suppose there was a person amongst you, or or imagine, if you will, that a brother is caught 
Paul wants them to consider how to address this situation that is very real, and as you know, we deal with on a regular basis. Now, this word caught, when Paul says, if anyone is caught, it doesn't mean that this person was surprisingly captured in the very act of some malicious and intentional aggressive sin. Instead, this has the idea of somebody who has been caught up in. Uh, somebody who, when a fellow believer has become entangled by a particular issue, it could be through ignorance or it could be through foolishness. Proverbs would call this the simple person. The simple one is one who lacks discernment and they live a weak, casual faith. And in doing so, they get caught up in, entangled by those affairs of the world, those practices that are unhealthy, those things that they have not discerned that are actually harmful to, to themselves as well as the body of Christ. It has the idea of one who is caught up or overtaken by a transgression. Martin Luther, in commenta- uh, his commentary on this verse, actually says, this is a softer term for sin. I wouldn't necessarily go that far. Sin is sin, but at the same time, Paul is talking to believers. And so this is the point. The heart of this passage is that it's not about condemnation when a brother comes alongside a brother. It's about admonition and loving correction. We can't misunderstand all offenses against God are sin and all the wages of sin are death. However, for the believer in Jesus Christ, we have Jesus Christ as our advocate. He treats you now as a son or a daughter, not as a hostile enemy. Some examples of this transgression or this sin that's being spoken of here, you can just look right over to chapter 5, verse 26. Paul says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Those are subtle sins, aren't they? For a more exhaustive list, you can look over to Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians 3, Paul also writes, detailing there, you can pick it up in verse 5, maybe verse 4. Verse 2 is a good place to start. Maybe verse 1. How about Genesis 1? I mean, it's all good. Where do you start, right? You need context. Now, let's pick it up in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, he's talking to believers. Put those things to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, Paul is writing to believers there as well and saying, you're still struggling with these same sins. And believers become entangled in these sins that we get caught up in, entangled by, and yet we're still ignorant too. That's why we need one another. And so we evaluate and we ask ourselves, am I arrogant? Am I being boastful or self-centered? Am I argumentative? How about jealous? Am I envious of others? You see, we can't be fooled. These are such subtle sins. We easily become entangled by them. And before we know it, what we've become entangled with has now put us in bondage. And we are stuck. And this is what eventually grows to destroy relationships, reputations, and even lives. 
Of course, we can't overlook the fact that the primary trespass that Paul is talking about in Galatians, the primary sin he's looking to address is that of legalism. Legalism. The claim that our right status before God is on the basis of our own works, and therefore our right status is what we're going to judge others by as well. That's legalism. Paul's addressing that, but this instruction is given for all areas of sin that we come entangled with. However, for those entangled with these sins, God has not left them without hope and help. God has provided help for the entangled brother. God has provided the help of you. You. He's given them you, the spiritual ones, as it says in verse 1. You are the spiritual lifeguards who are ready to assist other believers who have become entangled in sin. If you're a parent, you know this. You see it in your children. If you're married, you see it in your spouse. And we pray that our spouse would also address it in our lives to help us become untangled so that we don't become enslaved. How do you know if you are to be a spiritual one? If you already are a spiritual one, we don't really have to guess. Paul gave it to us in chapter 5, and you know them, the fruit of the Spirit. The spiritual ones demonstrate, manifest love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so we see what a spiritual person is. We can identify them. You're known by your fruit, so we have to ask the question, am I a spiritual one? Are you a spiritual one? And if not, why not? Now, keep in mind that this church was established just a few years prior. He's writing to a baby church. So does that mean that baby Christians are also obligated to receive this instruction and help others who are entangled and in sin? You bet. We are all given the resources we need and growing in this process of living out our own Christian life toward Christ-likeness as well as helping others. Thankfully, God gives us a very practical portion of Scripture. Don't panic, we have the instruction manual. Three imperatives to guide us into how to restore one another and come alongside and help each other that we might build each other up as the body of Christ. And our first command is given in verse 1. Namely, you can see it there, you who are spiritual should restore him. There's our first command. Our first imperative, when we're coming alongside to help a brother who's been entangled, caught up in a sin, we should restore him. To restore something means to put something back in a working and appropriate condition. I moved back to Washington about a year ago. We bought our house over in Snohomish. And if anybody buys a house in this area, chances are you're going to buy a fixer-upper because that's what most of us can get into. And so we're fixing it up. We're trying to restore it. We're trying to take that window that had a hole in it and replace it with one that now keeps the wind on the outside or the heat on the outside, and doors and likewise, right? We're trying to restore it to a condition where it's most functional, most appropriate. It's not perfect. It'll never be perfect. It's a work in progress, just like the Christian sitting next to you, just like the Christian sitting in your seat. We're all a work in process. The same hold true for believers. We need to be restored to a working condition. What is the appropriate working condition of a believer? Well, you know this. You've got to be a worshiper of God. You've got to be growing in Christ. You've got to be serving others, and you have to be witnessing to the world. And when you get caught up or entangled by things that distract you from this mission, 
derail you from this mission. You need others to come alongside and help you. So when you come alongside a brother or sister in Christ who's entangled in a trespass, an offense that has them in bondage, your aim in this restoration process is not humiliation. Your aim in the restoration process is not condemnation. What would that look like? Oh, I would never. Can you believe what you just did? Right? We don't want to humiliate them. We don't want to condemn them. We want to restore them. Our aim is to restore the struggling sinner. How different this is from the world in today's society. We want to broadcast it on the headlines. We, put it, we want to put it in tomorrow's newspaper. We want to put it all over social media. Before we even talk to the person, we're going to broadcast their sins. No wonder so many of us are so hesitant to, to confide in a brother or sister in Christ. It's dangerous nowadays. But it shouldn't be dangerous in the body of Christ. We should be able to go to somebody and trust that they will, in fact, love us and cover like 1 Peter 4, 8 says, keeping love for one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, in that context, the word cover speaks of hiding something or hindering the knowledge of something. So to clarify, covering a sin doesn't mean you deny its existence, and it doesn't mean you avoid confessing your sin. Covering a sin means it doesn't need to be known beyond the group of helpers who are coming along to assist, to care for, to partner with you in the restoration process. We want to restore the entangled back to a life of faithfulness and growth. But notice again in verse 1, we're not simply commanded to restore in any manner that we see fit. Rather, God tells us how this restoration process should be carried out. You see it there in verse 1, in a spirit of gentleness. I love how instructive God's Word is. He not only gives us a command of what to do, but then tells us how to do it. This should be no surprise. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. We just saw that. And it should be the new disposition of those who call themselves Christians. This means you don't lay a guilt trip on somebody. Or use such harsh, condemning words that you would, in fact, break their spirit. As Paul writes to the Thessalonians, admonish the unruly, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with all, and don't get those mixed up. We need to know how to care for one another. This means you don't lay a guilt trip on them and speak harshly. This is a time for admonishment. Admonishment. When you come alongside a brother and you put your arm around them and you shine the light of God's worth before them, and guide them through the path of truth and hope and help and healing along the way. Warning them of the dangers to come. This is exactly what the people of Christ, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God is for. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. This is using God's tools as God intended them to be used. Your ministry of restoration should be gentle. It should reflect the manner in which God restored you. You might recall Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. His kindness leading you to repentance. Now, let's see this in action for a second. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul actually describes his ministry to the Thessalonians in a way that shows us what this looks like in action as he recalls to them the time that he spent with them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, pick it up in verse 7. 
Well, let's pick it up in verse 6. Sorry, it's a bad habit. Uh, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were, what? Gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. We'll stop there. You see the image of Paul coming alongside them and not saying, I've got the gospel and you need to repent. Now, there's a time for that. But when you have a brother who's entangled, a child of God who has become caught up in, you come alongside in a gentle manner. As spiritual lifeguards, we restore gently. But this should also be done cautiously. You saw that there in the text as well, right? Right at the end of verse 1. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, when untangling and attempting to restore a sinning brother, we should be aware of our own personal vulnerabilities and the process so that we too will not be caught up in the same error, the same sin that we're looking to untangle them in. As an example, have you ever come alongside of somebody and, and maybe they're struggling with the sin of being argumentative or quarrelsome? And so you come alongside and you want to show them and explain to them how their behavior is actually not pleasing to the Lord and it's very harmful to others. And then they point the finger at you and they say, you Pharisee, you judgmental hypocrite, what are you doing approaching me for? Well, then we become offended and we turn to them and we begin arguing. And what have we just done? We've been caught up in the same sin we're looking to rescue them from. God's word is so instructive. Be cautious. Be careful. You remember Moses in Numbers chapter 20, right? He finally fed up with the people's impatience and complaints. And so what does he say? Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses, Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank. What just happened? Moses was caught up in the very thing he's looking, or he's frustrated with them about. Well, you might say it was effective. They got water, and they stopped whining, right? (laughs) Well, two verses later, actually, God shines the light on this when he says to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me, And because you did not uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. There's a manner in which God requires us to approach, restore, care for others. A manner in which would please the Lord and reflect his character. You see, as a spiritual lifeguard, you mustn't just seek to satisfy, silence, or the entangled one. Your aim in spiritual restoration is through gentleness and with caution. And by the way, before you look too critically at Moses, remember by that time it had been 37 years of their complaining. Many of us have struggled with 37 seconds of complaining. So our first aim in restoring is to gently and cautiously restore But there's more we can do. Paul gives a second imperative in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. 
that we should bear one another's burdens. You see, when a person is entangled in worldly affairs and fleshly pursuits or even caught up in the consequences of their own poor choices, there's an extra weight. There's an extra burden that they are carrying around. And yes, these burdens should be laid aside as Hebrews 12.1 commands, but there's still a healing and restoration process. When you're untangling a person from the sin that they've been caught up in, there's still memories. There's still regrets. There's still hurts. There's still scars. You don't just remove the wounded soldier from the line of fire and off the battlefield and then leave him there as if your job is done. No, this is a time of restoration that requires help and healing that may take months, years. And you as a spiritual lifeguard are called to be there to help. Help bear the weight of one another's prior trespasses and current temptations. Those are weighty issues. And we need to be there to help one another through those times for as long as it takes. Now, don't misunderstand Every sin that a believer has committed has been nailed to the cross. We confess it and are forgiven. We totally get that. But there's a residue, if I can say it that way, that lingers. The weight of this lingering burden does not need to be carried alone, but by the body of Christ. When one suffers, we all suffer. We're part of this body together. And this is not an optional ministry. This is a believer's community project. God's community, the body of Christ. Thankfully, because God's word is always sufficient for our needs, we are shown how to bear one another's burdens, right? The detail comes through again. You can see it in verse 2. We are to do this with Christ-likeness. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill, or in this way, fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the topic of the law of Christ is much larger than we can really fully flesh out this morning, but it's essentially referring to the very life and teaching of our Lord and Savior. So you fulfill the law of Christ when you follow his example and follow his teaching by the Spirit and through faith. We see this in all the just-as passages in the New Testament. For instance, Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. He is our example. In fact, Paul picks up on Jesus being the example in Romans 15. He says, Now we who are strong, spiritual ones, now we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, for even Christ did not please himself. Jesus is our perpetual, constant, perfect example that we are to follow. And when we true barely bear one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. So what might this look like to, to bear one another's burdens? Let me just mention three quick areas. As you are restoring a person and bearing the burden... Here's three, three areas. First, be present. Be with them. Make yourself available when the opportunity arises to spend time with them. It's been said, and this is so applicable in today's day and age, the most valuable gift we can give someone is our undistracted attention and willingness to listen. It's really hard to find that nowadays, isn't it? Somebody who will listen with 
attentiveness and being undistracted. First, be present. Second, you can bear the burden by praying. Be with them, be praying. God can do more in five seconds than you can do in five years or even five lifetimes. Pray for grace, pray for healing, pray for endurance, pray for wisdom, and pray for wise counselors to come in. Be present, be praying. Third, be practical. To bear one another's burdens means to practically, well, get your hands dirty. Do what needs to be done. Give hope and help for both the spiritual and the physical needs of the restoration process. This could be a meal. This could be money. Hands-on labor or simply as their advocate when they're unable to speak for themselves. To help bear the burden. In other words, don't just give them a book and say, read this and assume your job is done. Spend time, be praying, and meet those needs. But there's another aspect of burden bearing. It ought to be done with a sober-minded humility. We must never forget that but for the grace of God, there go I. Did you notice it in verse 3? For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing... He deceives himself. So did you catch that? Spiritual ones are humble. And if you're not humble, you're self-deceived. Paul gave this instruction in the letter to the Romans. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Romans 12, 15 and 16. As one man prayed, Lord, help me to be humble toward those whose sins are simply different than mine and compassionate toward others as I long for your compassion toward me. True burden bearing requires humility. Brothers and sisters in Christ must be willing to do the hard work of gently and cautiously restoring as well as bearing one another's burdens in a spirit of Christ-likeness and humility. Incidentally, how do you cultivate humility in this process? I mean, if Galatians 6 is kind of picks up where Matthew 18, you know, Matthew 18 says, come alongside a brother and approach him. And if he hears you, you've won your brother. Well, that's great, but the process goes on. We read Galatians 6. But before you even get to Matthew 18, you need to practice Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. Matthew 7, 1 to 5 tells us that we need to take the log out of our own eye before we address the speck in our brother's eye. Well, that's a humbling, humiliating process. You grow in humility by practicing Addressing yourself. This actually leads us right into our next point. The third command, the third imperative is found in verses 4 and 5. And it explains that a spiritual lifeguard's work is not only prepared for, but followed up by self-examination. Verses 4 and 5, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. 
What's being spoken of in these final verses is the phase of testing where we examine ourselves, or we test ourselves. The word used here for test in verse 4 is conducting a critical evaluation of something, determining the genuineness or the quality of something. According to these verses, that which should be put to the test, that which is being tested for, for quality and genuineness, is not the person that is being restored, but in fact the one doing the restoring. The work being done by the one restoring is the one who's to be put under evaluation and examined. You are to examine and evaluate yourself. We put ourselves under the microscope of God's word to determine whether our work is in fact actually helping the person that we're looking to minister to and care for and restore and build up back on the pathway of Christ-likeness. But honestly, this is really not like we have, how we like to do things, right? We would rather just jump in, provide some good counsel, give a book, spend a little time, pray, and go on our way. We'd like to consider the job done rather than have somebody or have God's word reveal that, you know, your, your ministry is really unfruitful. But God's word tells us we need to evaluate, we need to examine, we need to literally test ourselves. You see, the first two commands to restore and bear one another's burdens involve the what and the how of our obligation to one another. But this, first, this third command involves the who, the us, we. And the instruction here is clear. We should not be foolish Christians. Doing the work of ministry without pausing to examine the worker in the ministry. Coming underneath God's word and the light and the knife of God's word. If you are not in the process of self-testing and self-examination, you are in the process of self-deception. We must place ourselves under the light of God's word so that we might know our own work. This is how pastors fail. This is how leaders are disqualified. This is how believers destroy relationships and split churches. They refuse to examine their own life and they become boastful in themselves. They neglect their own heart. Even the fruit inspector must tend to his own orchard if he's going to remain qualified and faithful. Restoring others according to the word of God always requires self-examination and the willingness to take care of those items that are revealed in the process. Having said that, what does this examination look like? Well, it's not to be done by comparing ourselves to others. Instead, we examine ourselves against ourselves and against God's word to see if there's evidence of growth. See if there's evidence of faithfulness. And if we see, measuring ourselves against ourselves, that there's a pathway of growth and maturity, then we have reason for boasting. But even still, our boasting is not in ourselves, is it? There shouldn't be a prideful display of self-achievement. Rather, it is a confident affirmation of what God is doing in and through you by His grace. Remember, even in your role as a restorer, as a spiritual lifeguard who's coming to help others, to untangle them, this principle holds true. John 15, 5. For apart from Him, you can do nothing. 
God is using you to do that work. And so our boast is in him. Our boast is in the fact that he was willing to use us. So we boast about what God has done in our lives against the backdrop of our own spiritual past and not in comparison to another. For each person will bear his own load. Now, just to to clarify things, verse 2 speaks of bearing one another's burdens, and verse 5 speaks of um, bearing your own load. Verse 5 refers to the daily burden of living life as a Christian. Verse 5 says simply, everybody has a load to bear as a redeemed individual trying to follow Christ upstream in a broken world. There's a burden that we all bear. But verse 2 is specifically referring to Uh, those trespasses we've become entangled in and the lingering burden that weighs on us. Putting all this in context, this is what it means for believers in Christ to function as the body of Christ. We must be willing to help one another. I remember years ago stopping at an intersection, a very busy intersection, and I was new to the area, just waiting at the red light. And for whatever reason, this car comes flying back past right through the red light, just as the oncoming traffic was coming as well. And so right in the middle of the intersection, crash, spin, glass flying, bumpers falling. It was, it was scary. It was startling. It was awful. And it happened so fast, many of us just sat there going, whoa. But within seconds, the turn lane next to me, the light turned green and they began going. And not much longer, they were honking in frustration at the the annoyance of slowing traffic down, this accident in the middle of the road. The bumper had barely even hit the ground. The glass had barely even reached the ground. And yet people wanted to get on with their journey. They had things to do. They had places to go. And this horrific accident in front of them was simply slowing them down. I sometimes think we tend toward that in our own selfishness, in our own foolishness. We've got places to go. I've got an appointment. I'm in a hurry. Your horrific accident, this thing you've become entangled with by your own foolishness, well, that's your fault. Get out of my way. Galatians 6 tells us that if the people of Christ, the body of Christ, are to function the way he designed, we are to care for one another. We should respond to one another. And I hope that you've seen this morning that you're obligated to and you've been equipped to. The question is, are you willing to do the hard, dirty work of restoring one another in Christ-likeness? Just two final encouragements. We live in a fallen world. And praise God that we have salvation in Jesus Christ, the true and eternal burden bearer of every sin that we commit. Praise God. But praise God that he also provided one another. We cast all our cares on him because he cares for us, but he cares for us by also providing one another in the body of Christ. And secondly, a final encouragement, friends, these are the nuts and bolts of doing ministry together, of living life together. You've been drafted into the army of God 
to not only preach the gospel to the world, but to love and care and restore one another so that the world might know how we love one another as God has loved us. Let me close in a word of prayer. Lord, you know our weaknesses. You know that many of us are too often overburdened by our own poor decisions. Help us, Lord, to have the eyes to see our own sin and the courage to ask for forgiveness from you as well as help from others. But Lord, help us also to be those who would fulfill our role in the body of Christ and restore others to faithfulness and fruitfulness. Help us, Lord, to love others just as you have loved us, by your grace and for your glory. We pray in the mighty and matchless and perfect name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.